0: Welcome to the Desert Life Church Podcast. We're so excited you've tuned in to hear our weekend message. From wherever you are listening, we hope you're inspired by this message. Thank you all. Please be seated. Um, look, first of all, I just want to um, reiterate uh, Pastor Mez's thanks for, you, for everyone who was involved in Let's Help Stay. Uh, it, a great event. We've heard really good feedback about it. Unfortunately, we weren't there. We were actually in Coober Pedy. Um For those of you who heard my last sermon, I should just re- reiterate, we were there with fuel. It was okay. Um, it was not absence of fuel that stopped us from being uh, at Let's Help Day. But thank you everyone for your efforts. And it is so great to hear feedback outside of the church about what the church is doing and the difference it's making. So as Mez said, this is the last in a series that we've been doing called The Voice. And we, the, the premise of the series is very simple. It is based upon the music show The Voice. I've, I know we've explained this to you a few times before. We'll reiterate it again just in case any of you haven't seen it. Um, but the, the premise of the voice is you have judges sitting in seats, they're not looking at the stage, a, a person comes out on stage and sings, and if the judges like the voice then and it meets their expectations of what a, uh, the right singer or voice should be, they turn around and say, great, you're, you're on the team. And we've sort of taken that as an analogy for, and, and as, a, as a framing of a, two questions that are really important for us. The first one is, if we were in the judge's chair and we had a view of what Jesus should sound like and Jesus came out on stage, would we turn our chair? Would he actually, would, would Jesus as he came out on stage meet our expectations? <laughs> um, so the kids are having a whale of a time I gather. Linwood's in charge this morning he wasn't in charge in the first sermon so I blame it on him so we'll just roll with it so would we hear Jesus' voice as he came out on stage and we would we say yep that's the voice of Jesus that I that I've read so much about and that I've heard and I've had engagement with or do we sit there and go that doesn't sound quite right and thanks mess um (laughs) I feel like for anyone who's listening to this on the podcast, you can, there's a lot of noise going out in the background. So the question is, is, would we hear Jesus and go, yes, that's, that's the voice that I want to turn around for? Or would... <laughs> I feel like we should just, just move on. So um, would we turn around for it? Or would we actually be a little bit like the Jews of the day who said... We've been waiting for a Messiah for 400 years and Jesus turns up and says, I'm the Messiah. And they go, no, I don't think you are. I don't think you're the Messiah that we want. We wanted a different Messiah. So do we actually understand what what it would be like to have Jesus there? Do we actually really understand what he would sound like? Or do we have our own prejudices and biases that would mean that we wouldn't turn around because it doesn't sound quite the way we expect? And the second part of that is, if we did know what Jesus sounded like and if we did have a relationship with him and we were coming on stage and someone who didn't know Jesus was in the seat, would they recognize Jesus' voice as we spoke or would they turn around? Would they find it something they wanted to listen to? So they're the two questions that we put to ourselves and that's sort of the framing of it. Now I do appreciate that as a metaphor, we've probably stretched it about as far as we can uh, so we won't be going on with the voice a lot longer than this but I do want to recap a little bit about where we've actually been to over the last number of weeks. The first one is, is that fundamentally, the Jesus, the voice of Jesus, is first and foremost, the voice of God. And this is a really important statement for us to make, because we can project whatever we want onto Jesus, but ultimately, he is the voice of God. And indeed, in John fourteen six, 6, we read those Immortal words of Christ saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, this is so important because it sets up a framing of understanding that Jesus is the voice of God. He's a representative of God, but also that he's relational and that we can only come to God through a relationship with Christ. And that then sets up an understanding that faith in Jesus starts with a relationship and ends with life change. Whereas so often we tell people to start with life change and end with a relationship. So this is why understanding that the voice, the voice of Jesus is indeed the voice of God is such a, an important starting point for this whole conversation. Secondly, we believe that he is the, he is the voice of grace. So often we talk about grace in church and we refer to the verse in Romans 5, we talk about unmerited favour, unmerited privilege, undeserved privilege. If we could bring that phrase up, so uh, Romans 5 verse 2. And we look at it and say, grace is all about an undeserved privilege, which is exactly what it is. However, we miss a little bit of the story when we don't understand what actually the background to this phrase is, what actually grace really means. And if we trace the roots of the word grace in the in the original Greek, we find a word charis, which has its origin being joy. And then we see this reflected in the balance of this verse and we it, that Christ has brought us into a place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. And too often we see, we, we as, uh, as, a, as a church, as a broad community of believers, we're happy to talk to people about their need for grace because of their undeservedness. And we actually, as at the same time as we're using the word grace, we're condemning people and talking, oh, you're undeserving. We focus on that side of it. And we don't actually talk to people around the, the undeserved privilege brings to us the joyous glory or joyous opportunity of sharing in God's glory. So he is a voice of the word and he is a voice of grace. He's a voice of calling. Jesus fundamentally was winsome in his nature. He was someone who brought people to him. He, he dragged people into his circle. To engage with he was someone who didn't stand apart and stand on high and and sort of look down on people he met with people the very first thing he did was go to the very first miracle we see was him going to a party to going to a wedding to sit with people he then he got his 12 disciples he drew, drew people in towards him the dictionary defines winsome as someone who is attractive or appealing in character Winsome, as an adjective, describes someone who is pleasant to be around. Jesus, as a voice of a, a, the voice of calling, was someone who made himself attractive to be around. Now, that, we've got to be very careful there. That's not populism. That's not about just being a nice guy. But his, his manner, his engagement with individuals was endearing and connecting. It was about looking at someone individually and saying, I want to talk to you. And in a way that, that the Jews of the time had never actually had a, had a leader talk to them like that. that. I want to talk to you. I want to, I want to be with you. We heard about Zacchaeus, the, the man who's described as being a short stature, someone who was very well of, not very well thought of in the time. And, and the Greek definitions of short of stature is not just referring to height. If you understand how it describes the person, it's describing their character. They didn't think that Zacchaeus was a person of significance or merit because he was a tax collector. He was corrupt. He stole money from people. And yet this was the person that Jesus said, you, I want to go home with you. Let's go and have dinner. He was a character that was an endearing and engaging person, someone who drew them to be around. true true people around him that people wanted to be around so a voice of god he was a voice of grace he was a voice of calling he was a voice of the word in the very first verses of matthew the gospel of matthew we see jesus being introduced in the context of the historical lineage of david that the whole framing of Jesus' presence was here he is within the, the connection to, to David and to the, the kings, and to here's how this line, the, the lineage actually comes out. But what sometimes happens is that we think, well, he's a voice of the word, so all that matters is the word. if we just just know the Bible well enough, then we'll know Jesus. In fact, if we just know the Bible well enough, we'll be able to convince other people to love Jesus. I'm sure there's there's people in your life, there's people in my life, who know how to quote scripture at all occasions. There's those people you know who... If the toast gets burnt, they've got a scripture verse for the toast being burnt. If they they're, they get stuck in a uh, in a, a traffic jam, they've got a scripture verse for that. If the TV channels get interrupted; they've got a verse for that. There's individuals you know in your life. There's individuals in this church who are who are able to quote scriptures like that. But just knowing the word and just knowing the Bible in and of itself is not enough to actually bring people into relationship with Jesus. And often we find ourselves as a, as a community of believers saying things like, well, the Bible says so. And fundamentally, that is exceedingly meaningless if the person that you're telling that to doesn't actually know what the Bible is or what the Bible says. And in fact, Jesus was entirely comfortable In a world where he could sit there and debate scriptures with the Pharisees and Sadducees. But when needed, he would engage with people without even referencing the word. He would give parables. He'd give different ways of thinking about it. So instead of saying the Bible tells me so, we need to sort of think about it differently and say, now that I've been introduced to the grace and the joy of Jesus, can the Bible help us understand more of whom Jesus is? Can I... Can, can the Bible help build that relationship rather than being a, a source of condemnation? Critically, Jesus did not weaponize the Bible. He did not use the Bible to, to take people down. He used Scripture to lift people up. We can hear in the Bible as we read it, from, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation... Every single verse in there is calling out Jesus' name and describing an individual who wants to be in relationship with us. That's what it means to say he was a voice of the word. He was a voice of change. So voice of God, voice of grace, voice of calling, voice of the word. He was a voice of change. He was someone who was never afraid to turn things over, to upend expectations, to, to change the narrative. In this day and age, we'd say he was an innovator or a disruptor. We'd probably base him in Silicon Valley and get him to start a tech company or something. But he, was, he changed things. Rather than just peaching at people, he engaged with people directly. He used illustrations and leading questions. He said things like, well, who do you say I am? Now, that, that as, a, as a question, that question doesn't exist elsewhere in the Bible. There was only one person could ask it. But, but he, he changed the relationship and engagement with people by asking those leading questions. He changed the way we pray. He said to everyone, no, no, no. All these meaningless words, the long prayers. Here's the Lord's prayer. This is how you pray. He changed expectations. And he upended the law. He went to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they're they're asking, which is the most important commandment? So this is Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Now, at this point, the Jews are on board, the Pharisees and Sadducees are on board, because that's pretty much basically commandment number one out of the 10 commandments, love God so they're on board with that but then he turns around and he messes with their head and says a second is equally important and they're sort of like well no hang on we've we live in a world where everything has a hierarchy and structure there's one two three one down to ten we cannot have equivalence we cannot have things equal but he's going well there's one a which is love the lord your god one b equally important the head's already getting messed up with this he says a second is equally important. Love your neighbour as yourself. This is, this is transformational at this point in time because this is saying to the Jews, no, you've got to love, love based not on hierarchy, not on where you live, not on whether someone's a leper or not, not on whether someone's a Samaritan or not, not when, whether someone has done the right things, made the right offering. No, just love your neighbour as yourself. It's brought an equivalency to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they'd never had to consider before. Completely changed their frame of reference. And then he finishes with it and says the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So 1A and 1B were the, were the same, love God and love your neighbour. Changed, reframed the entire world. But he was also not afraid to change the way that he got people to work with him and for him. In Mark, we read about the demon-possessed man who had been been demon-possessed for many years and Jesus took the demons out and put them into a herd of pigs that went over the the cliff. People were amazed. The demon-possessed man said, Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to stay with you because you've just changed my life. What does he do? He says, no. Go home and tell people the good news that you've seen. Go out and preach what you've seen. He empowered someone who only hours before had been full of dem- demons. He empowered that person to go out and, and preach that good news. He changed the expectation of how people could come into a relationship and then go and have a role in a world where your role was defined by hierarchy and hereditary, hereditary um, privilege. Ultimately, his focus was on the results of people coming into relationship with God through him. And he was happy to change whatever it needed to be changed in order that he was able to achieve the outcome that he wanted. The people seeking forgiveness and bringing their lives to him. It's a voice of God, voice of Christ, voice of the word, voice of, the, voice of change, voice of calling, voice of calling and a voice of the time so as much as he was willing to change stuff he also knew instinctively where things were at and he communicated with people based upon where he knew people's lives were today we'd call that culturally engaged he would he he knew what was motivating people so he he brought in the parables the parables are important because until that point in time that there, there aren't parables like that in the rest of the Bible, it's a very unique thing that he brings forward. And what he does is goes, right, you're a farmer, you know about sheep. Right, I'm going to talk to you about it. I'm going to give you an important lesson about sheep and goats. And you'll understand more of God because of that. Oh, you you grow crops. Okay, I'll talk to you about seeds and planting seeds in fertile soil versus infertile soil. He was able to engage with people as to where they were. And we see this later on in Acts um, 17, verse 28, where where Paul replicates the same activity. for He was in Greece, and he's trying to work out how to engage with the, the, the Greek po- um, philosophers and Sto- Stoics at the time. And he says to the, to the Greeks, for in him we live and move and exist. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul was doing something really profound here. He was actually using the words of the culture that he was in to actually bring a reflection of Jesus into that culture. And that's really quite powerful because so often we assume that the only way to bring Jesus' words is to say, oh, we have to do it through this defined way that we do in church and here's the structure that we have to operate in. And Paul was following Jesus' lead going, I will use whatever method I can in order to be able to get people to understand the identity of Christ, even if I have to reference a non-Christian philosopher. He's brought them into that. So he was a voice of the time. And that leads us to then the last of the voices, a voice of thoughtfulness. And that's what we're going to talk through a bit more today. So a voice of God, a voice of grace, a voice of calling, a voice of the word, a voice of change, a voice of the time, and a voice of thoughtfulness. Now, as an engineer and many of you have heard me talk about being an engineer, so I apologise for dwelling on this again, but it's the only frame of reference I have. As an engineer, one of, the, one of the dirty secrets about what we do as engineers is that we don't always know exactly what it is that we're doing. Now, I'll flesh that out a little bit. This science seeks to understand the world around us by... By doing tests and trials and saying, well, okay, we've now observed with physics that if we push here, then that moves over there. But engineering is an inherently creative activity where it's saying, well, okay, we've done X, Y, and Z, and every time we did it, that was the outcome. Now, what happens if we do something a little bit different? And we can make a pretty good guess as to what the outcome is, and we can do lots of maths. But the little secret is, is that as we're doing it, we have to deal with a lot of uncertainty. And because of that uncertainty, as much as we do all of the maths, we get to the end a little bit and go, we've done all this maths here, here, here and here. And we'll just multiply the answer by two because we're not quite sure. And so when you go and drive over a bridge, there's a bunch of structural engineers who've done some really fancy maths and computational fluid dynamics to try and work out the dynamic loading on that bridge. But they did all of that And then they got to the end and said, oh, we'll just add a little bit on the end, just to be sure, because we're not quite certain exactly what it should be. And in fact, in the engineering that I do, electrical engineering, it has some of the most esoteric maths, and it's got some really, really funky concepts about it. If you're doing mechanical or structural engineer or civil engineer, you can sort of imagine forces and and pulleys and and pressures and and, and different structures and see how they work. You can sort of imagine in your mind and go, okay, I can see how this comes together. But the thing about electrical engineering is it's really hard to imagine how circuits work and how volts and amps work and what actually happens inside a motor or magnets and stuff like that. And in fact, it's so complex to do that, we had to develop an area of maths called imaginary maths. So we actually had to make up our own maths that's imaginary to just try and describe the world because we don't completely understand how it works. Now, I'm not going to dwell into why that works, but it, it does. So we've got an imaginary world... ...that we as engineers use to describe how our power systems operate. We deal in a world of uncertainty. And in fact, most of the time, what we're doing requires a fair amount of faith... ...and a lot of nuance. And nuance is actually what we're talking about here. Nuance is understanding that as an engineer... ...being really dogmatic about certain things isn't helpful. Now, I've sat in a room where, with four different groups of engineers talking about a, a concrete foundation. This foundation is as wide from, from where Craig is over there to where Mayer is over there, so that wide, about four and a half, five metres tall, and that deep again, 700 cubic metres of concrete in it, 70 tonne of steel. It is a big thing that you're building. And you sit them up there with them all in the room and go, so do we all agree that this is right? And then they all look at you and sort of like little rabbits in the, in the headlights going, oh. Ah. think so could we put some more steel in because there's uncertainty they've taken into account all the things that they can think of but then they're worried that there's something that they may not have been aware of and so they have to allow it in there and so in their designs we have to have nuance now i have been at various times been accused of being quite left-wing i've been accused of being quite right-wing and some people assume that because a lot of the work we do as a, in the work that I do is in developing countries and regional areas, and we do a lot of work around renewables and, and integrating power systems, they assume that we, we, must have, we, we must definitely be left-wing and have a very strong view on certain things. And I was recently challenged by some people who felt that I had not spoken out about climate change. And then I had some other people who felt that I was talking about climate change too much. And as a result, I felt it necessary to write down what it was that I or how I'd formed a view around how I should as an individual approach climate change. Now, I'm going to read this out and I need to stress that this is not a statement of what the church necessarily believes or as endorses. And I'm not even reading this out to try and convince you one way or another. What I want you to listen to is to the nuance and the the balance that has to go into some of these statements. So please just bear with me for a moment. In my view, the vast weight of evidence strongly suggests that the earth is experiencing and is likely to experience material changes to climate and weather patterns due to increased levels of carbon dioxide and equivalence in the atmosphere. Further, the evidence strongly suggests that human activity... Particularly over the last 100 years, is a material contributor to increased carbon dioxide and equivalents in the, in the atmosphere. If the forecast impacts of climate change prove correct, the evidence strongly suggests that there will be significant changes to the livability of many areas that are currently under stress. And I would further note that it seems likely that the greatest burden of the impacts of climate change would seem most likely to be borne by those who are least able to respond or adopt. In light of the above, it would seem therefore prudent to me to it would seem therefore prudent to me that we should all be actively engaged in sustained efforts to reduce the impacts of climate um, or reduce the climate impacts of our activities and lifestyles. Now you may note that I've been cautious in my language, deliberately choosing phrases such as strongly suggests and is likely to. I've done this for two reasons. One, to make statements such as the science is settled or to speak with certainty about exact impacts is not technically correct because all of our models have degrees of uncertainty. And indeed, we deal with uncertainty regularly in our other engineering work. And to that end, we should apply the same rigour to the engagement on this topic as we would with any other. And just as a side note, saying things like the science is settled is similar to saying things like the Bible said so. It's designed to shut down a conversation, not to engage in one. The second reason I've used that language is because definitive statements about exact values of potential sea level rise, impacts upon the world, temperature increases, et cetera, leave mitigating action open to dispute if those values are not precisely met. And we've seen this already where someone said that this is what's going to happen. It didn't happen exactly, so that's been used as an argument to de- invalidate everything else that's go- going on. And if those values are not precisely met, it damages the mitigating action, even when the actual action still would have had a merit, whether it was 1.5 degrees or 1.75 or 2 or 4 or whatever. Fundamentally, it is my view that climate change is a risk, with both likelihood and consequence. That, while uncertain, in aggregate, those risks are worthy of mitigation. We do the same with all sorts of risks in our world, Indeed, we spend considerable sums of money ensuring ourselves against low-probability, high-consequence events. Responding to climate change and its potential impact does not seem to me to be any different, except perhaps for the scale. Now, as I said, this is not... I'm not reading to this to you today to try and convince you. I'm not trying to push a particular agenda. But what I am pointing out is someone who works in this area and who spends my entire life dealing with the physics of the earth, the physics of the world, and understanding, trying to make technical decisions about uncertain inputs. This is the nuance that I have to have. I cannot afford to be dogmatic because it robs me the opportunity to respond to the information that as it comes. And in, in our faith as Christians, and the reason why I want to bring it up, is our faith as Christians, we face similar issues. We face complicated questions And Jesus didn't tell us to switch off our brains and sometimes there is fundamentally no right answer and trying to have a dogmatic answer actually shuts down our capacity to represent the face of Christ into an often dark situation. Sometimes there are no right answers other than to say, I wish it wasn't so. Rachel and I went to a church when we were growing up and there was a lady there who had a daughter who died at six years old of leukaemia. And this lady, um, she's now a quite well-respected um, pr- uh, pastor. She's done a lot of work in counselling. She had a tremendous faith. And I still remember standing in the church where she was at the funeral and when someone was, she was just crying and saying, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did God let this happen? The, the cry that is so understandable that any mother here any parent here would understand the grief that is embedded within that cry. And at that time, a helpful individual chose to stand next to her and said, well, it's possibly because you didn't pray enough. And someone else had brought a similar comment around, well, well, God's got a plan. Like These things don't help. This particular circumstance, the right answer was, I don't know, but I'm right here with you. It's okay to say I don't know. A little while ago, a family friend of mine, I must have been about 20 years old or so, rang me. He's someone that I had known since I was, uh, I was quite young. He'd been a best friend through high school loved him dearly as a brother and in fact we we were treated equally by both of our mothers which meant both his mother and my mother would yell at me at various times and likewise and we'd both get t- chided about not doing homework but he rang me and he said Lyndon I've got something to tell you and he, I could sense that his voice was burdened and it was burdened with an expectation because he rang me to say Lyndon you need to know that I'm gay and came from a Catholic family, a, a, an Irish and Italian Catholic family. And he said, "Lynne, I need to tell you I'm gay." And his voice was uncertain because he didn't know what my what he, my response would be. In fact, his expectation, knowing that we were my family was went to church, and my family were inv- strongly involved in the church. His expectation was that I would then say that somehow our relationship would have to change. And all I could say to him was, I don't know what you're going through right now. And I don't understand how to respond properly to all of this, other than to say, I love you, you're my brother still, and this doesn't change anything for me. And that was a circumstance where the right answer was not trying to deconstruct it, it was just to say, I'm here with you. Rach and I have had other similar experiences where a family member contacted us to say that they were now transgender. That they no longer identified as a male, but were going to be a woman, and we had to call them a different name, and this was was happening. And at that particular point in time, I can... Sort of sit there and take a, a view. Well, let's, let's, okay, thank you for telling me about that. Let's have a little bit of a Bible study and I'll explain to you all the reasons why I think what I think and all the rest of it. And Jesus is saying, sometimes, sometimes we don't know all the answers. And in that circumstance, I didn't need to know all the answers. All that person needed to know was that I'd keep talking to them and I'd always be there and I'd always be part of their family. And if any of you are wondering whether this is somehow being soft on things or not understanding them properly, the reality is, is this is actually dealt with in the Bible. If we go to Romans 11, uh, Romans 11, verse 33 to 35. Oh God, how, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? And I draw tremendous comfort in these, voice, in these words because what it says to me is I don't have to know all the solutions. I don't know, need to know all the answers. And to that family member, I can say, I don't understand all of this, but I love you. And to my friend, I can say, I don't understand what you're going through, but I love you. And to that lady who Rachel and I had known in our church, we can say, I don't understand what exactly is happening right now, but we love you. We don't understand why this has been caused, but we love you and we stand with you. This, These issues are complex issues. They require deep thought and nuance. They don't require glib statements. They don't require just trotting out words for the sake of it. And sometimes as Christians, we can say, look, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know what I believe about that. But I can tell you what I do believe. And the important thing is is this tension, this issue that we're dealing with at the moment is something that has been around for thousands of years. In fact, very early on after the church had been established... 300 .AD, there were people running around going, "What does it mean to be a Christian? How do I determine whether someone's a Christian? What do we actually believe? Which parts are important?" And remembering, of course, at this point in time, the Bible wasn't all fully written down. They didn't have a bound Bible to go around. So people were teaching different things, sharing different things. And so the community of believers got together and they put together what's called the Apostles' Creed. And effectively, it was a statement of faith that said, if you can sign up to this, you're Christian. If you get this bit in, you're Christian. Everything after that, something we can discuss. And that Apostles' Creed was first drafted 1,700 years ago. And through generations, it has been a staple of understanding what the Christian faith was. We don't use it much in our church these days, partly because we're so fortunate to have uh, to, be, to, to have so many translations. We've got so much opportunity for teaching where we can explore and do all of this. But in a world where you don't have access to the information, that creed is so powerful because it sets ourselves up. And I'm going to read that creed now because I think it's actually really important that as a, as a church we understand what it is we believe and, and, and I can restate this creed as something that's deeply personal to me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of our Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, I'll pause for a moment, Catholic there, for those who don't understand, it's a small c, Catholic, and refers to the original definition, which means the broad church, the Catholic, as its true understanding, is a group of people, so it's the, the holy group of the church, the holy church coming together, so it's not, not the Roman Catholic Church down the road, it's a big church, everyone understood that. So, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life ever after. Amen. That's what I believe. And I hope each of you are able to form a similar statement of faith yourself. But everything else requires nuance. Because when I go back and read this and I look at all the words that are there, this doesn't tell me how to deal with climate change. It doesn't tell me what an appropriate economic theory for Christians to support should be. And surprisingly, there are people who have views that Christians should only vote one way or another based upon economic ideologies of political parties. But I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not here. I've read those words quite a lot. It's not there. When I read those words... It doesn't tell me to condemn my friend who rang me. When I read those words, it doesn't tell me exactly how to deal with a family member who has done something that was, when I was a teenager, it would never even considered to me that people would do that. It doesn't tell me anything there other than, "I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, as Christians, and particularly as Christians in the West, we are increasingly defined, and when people ask or assume that they know what it is we believe, we're increasingly defined by what it is that we don't believe in or what we don't support rather than what we do believe in if you ask many of the non-christian friends that i have and say to them what what do christians believe they will start by saying they don't believe in gay marriage they don't believe in 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 climate change they don't believe in um, social issues they don't believe in this they don't believe in that they don't believe in all these things they won't start by going, oh, Christians, they believe in God the Father Almighty. They believe in Jesus Christ, the, the only Son of, the, of God. The Christians believe in the Holy Spirit. They tell us all the things we don't believe in, but not the actual things that we do believe in that give fundamental identity to who we are as Christians. There's a guy called Dreher who's done a lot of research in the in the US and, uh, and, and looking at faith and belief within the US as it currently stands. And he reports that even among the people who describe themselves as Christians, there is an astonishing ignorance of what the particular denominations believe and even the broadest outline of Christian history. The religion of modern young American nominal Christians is at best, he argues, a kind of moralistic therapeutic deism. Some good words there. This holds that there is a God he exists to solve your problems and make you feel happy and you should be nice to people and your chief goal in life is to feel happy all the time. Religion thus becomes kind of a therapist's flexible couch designed solely for your comfort with God reduced to a quiet parody of a non-directional therapist who addresses your problems only by repeating your own thoughts back to you and at best murmuring sometimes that really you are a very, very special person. It's a pretty damning indictment of, of the Christian faith and I would look at it and say that that reflects a world a, a group of Christians who've just spent a lot of time thinking about what they don't believe in and less time about thinking about what they do believe in and in fact what I see and what I read is a lot of people who now and, and a lot of people as Christians who, who almost reject reject intellectual thought or reject the world outside of the Bible. They will not read anything unless it's an approved Christian source of literature. They don't listen to music that is not approved Christian music. They don't engage with thinkers or philosophers who aren't approved Christian philosophers. And I think it's fundamentally wrong. In the end, as Christians, we, are, we believe that we are made in the image of God, which means our brain is something, our capacity to think and our capacity to create is something intrinsically related to the image of God. And so therefore, we have to value and understand and appreciate that which is creative and, and the thinking and the inspiration that comes from humans and from what they can do. And sure enough, if we only focus on the intellectual creativity and philosophizing the world and all the rest of it, we can, we can use it to fight God. And Paul talks about this later in, a, in 1 Corinthians, that, that, that we shouldn't use those intellectual arguments to fight against God. But when we have a belief in God and then we can embrace that, the, the philosophy and the art and the science of the world around us, then that's thoughtfulness and that's God intended. We are compelled to think deeply about the world around us. God can and has and continues to inspire and speak through all of His creation, both Christian and non-Christian, and that there is an intrinsic value. I fundamentally believe there's an intrinsic value in understanding, and engaging with a product of that inspiration, even if it's not explicitly Christian, be it art or literature or science the purpose of engaging with philosophy or literary works is to draw on the full experience of the human condition, of human endeavour and thinking. Mozart's Requiem, one of the greatest of the pieces that Mozart produced and it's designed to be performed by a large orchestra with a huge choir behind it. It's recited in music halls all around the world regarded as one of the greatest pieces of classical music. And he used in the Requiem one of the, the, one of the strongest lines, remember kind Jesus, my salvation caused your suffering. In the inspiration of this, this musical genius, he was still able to bring forward an acknowledgement and understanding and relationship of Jesus. That doesn't mean you all have to go out and listen to classical music straight away. You can listen to other music. But the point is, is that it can be inspired and you can draw things from it. Because by understanding philosophy and literature, we develop a deeper understanding of the human condition and thus God's creation. When we read of the the modern music and we read the lyrics and stuff, we hear the struggles that people have with the world. It gives us an understanding of who they are and what they're dealing with. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to acknowledge and accommodate and believe and and utilise. Because by understanding it, we are able to understand the wisdom of past generations and we can properly contextualise that. Our diverse background, our cultures and our experiences can bring a unique flavour to whom we are and how we express Jesus in the world around us. This whole voice series is all about understanding not the Jesus that we want, but the Jesus that we have. Not the Jesus that we'd like him to be, but the Jesus that is actually standing there calling us with nail pierced hands. And then making sure that the Jesus we portray isn't the Jesus we want to portray, but we're portraying the Jesus that Jesus wants to portray. That we're actually using His words, not ours. That we're, we're looking at the full scope of who it is that Jesus is and how that can be broadcast into to the world around us. I want to finish this whole voice series with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the arguably the greatest modern um, theologians in the 21st century or the 20th century. And he was ultimately killed by the Germans. He was a German philosopher himself and German theologian and he refused to buckle to the, the call of the Nazis to change how he preached about Jesus and the supremacy of Jesus and of God over, over all human uh, principalities refused to step back from that and he believed deeply in a personal and in intellectual and long-lasting thoughtful engagement with Jesus he believed in the voice of God the voice of the word the voice of grace the voice of calling the voice of change the voice of time the voice of thoughtfulness one of the last things he wrote he wrote this statement about his faith We must be able to speak about our faith so that hands will be stretched out towards us faster than we can feel them. What a, what a remarkable image that we could speak about our faith so that hands are being stretched out and we're, they're being stretched out faster than we can even feel them. And this from a man who is about to be executed for having that same faith. this voice series in some respects has been quite challenging because it's and it's been challenging for me and for the others who've been sharing over this time because each of the things we're talking about are challenging our own ways of doing stuff and challenging isn't necessarily bad it can be uncomfortable but we're doing it because we believe that this is what we need to do we believe we're doing it because this is what i believe i need to i need to do I'd like you all to stand with me. In a moment, we're gonna pray and we're gonna sing because prayer and as a fellowship of believers and singing as a group of believers is as much a statement of faith as reading out something like the Apostles' Creed. It's something we do and is something as special that we're able to do, do together. But in a moment, we're also going to read out the Apostles' Creed. It's not something we do a lot. There are some churches who do this every every week. We don't do it every week because when you just read the same thing out over and over, it can become just a tradition that no longer has weight. But I'd like to do it together as a church today because... As we think about the voice of Jesus, as we think about how we leave today, how we're going to communicate differently, that voice of God, the voice of grace, the voice of calling, the voice of um, change, the voice of times, the voice of the Word, the voice of thoughtfulness, as we take those things out and think about how our voice will change, we also need to be able to go out and say, and this is what I believe, and this is what I believe. So please join me if you feel comfortable. We're going to read this out and then we're going to pray and then we'll sing. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I think it's going to come up on the screen. No, just run with it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. And that is something we can all believe in. And I ask you to bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity that we've had over these past weeks and months to be able to come and to to hear from your Word, to learn more about your voices as, as you intended it to be. Lord, I ask that you Give each of us that unique understanding and relationship with Jesus. That our voice is influenced and changed by his impact upon our lives. For anyone here today, Lord, who who hasn't had that experience, I just pray that you are able to bring that to him now. That you're able to, to, that voice is able to just whisper into the ears of these people here today. And for the rest of us, Lord, I just pray that you empower us, that you... You lift us as we walk out of here with a different voice, a voice that is able to go out and to speak your name to the streets, to be able to see your name called forth. And the people will reach out their hands to hear more of it faster than we can feel them. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise your holy name. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us in the podcast. For more information about Desert Life Church, go to desertlifechurch.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day, and remember, you belong here.